This morning, I'm going to be teaching on the topic of God's holiness. This is an attribute that shines so brightly, and when properly understood, it really does fuel our worship, and it shows us our great need. And I've labored long with a desire to put God's holiness on display this morning in a fresh, understandable way, but I'm well aware of the lack of time to accomplish this in one talk. And even with all, all that I will speak of this morning, there's so much more to be said. I feel the insufficiency of my words to capture this amazing reality. The more I studied it, the more I wanted to say, but I had to draw the line somewhere. So I want to begin by asking for God's help O oh, great God in highest heaven, glorify your name through me. I'm dependent on your Holy Spirit this morning, as we all are. I pray that you pour out your spirit on us and help us to see you more clearly this morning, especially in your holiness. Pray that there would be hearts to understand, eyes to see you and to see ourselves. Thank you that you are present with us this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So not too long ago, I think you all know, I was in Louisville with my daughter Grace and her family. And it was a busy time helping them move out of an apartment and move into their new house. And their bedroom and the kitchen had been gutted to be remade. So we lived in quite a bit of disarray. Um, all the while anticipating any day, the arrival of baby number two, who was coming through a home birth. Um, and it was a memory for sure, and it's one that I do like to tell for comic relief when time allows, because it was pretty funny. But I'll just make the point that it was very full and different kind of month for me. And I loved this special time with part of my sweet family, but my quiet times, they were almost non-existent. I would read a short, gospel-centered devotional in the morning whenever I could and throw up prayers haphazardly and sporadically. And when I got home a month later, it was far harder than I thought it would be to switch gears. There were several things on our calendar that week that were church-related, and I just didn't have it in me. Writing this talk was looming in my mind, and um, I felt dry and uninspired. I remember sitting in the chair where I read and pray in the mornings and thinking, I'm just not feeling the holiness of God. And as soon as I had that thought, I had this thought come to me. God's holiness is an objective truth that is not based on how I feel. It doesn't matter whether I feel awed by it at any given time or not, he is holy still. Perhaps you can relate to some of this. Um, many of you are in a stage of life that is very busy, and you might feel dry or uninspired by God on any given day. It's easy for us to make our thoughts about God more about our feelings 
than the objective truth of who he is. Now, the truth of who God is most certainly intersects with our lives, but so often I'm guilty of making my feelings the foremost reality. God himself is the foremost reality, not my interaction with him. And that can be a bit hard for us to swallow because we're prone to making it all about our experiences with God, which are important, but not primary. We often come to God, whether through our personal study of the Bible, prayer, church events, or our time of worship on a Sunday morning, and our main consider consideration can be, how do we feel? Do we feel stirred by God? Can we see around us or feel inside of us the movement of the Holy Spirit? We're often mainly looking for an experience, something to make us feel close to God, or if we're being honest, something to make us feel better in some way. Wanting to experience God is good, but we need to be careful that we don't assume that we do, when we don't see him or feel him, that somehow he is not there. First and foremost, there is objective truth about God that is true throughout the history of his creation and beyond infinitely. Um, no matter what is happening around us or in us, ultimately, that's what this study of he is is about. It's about objective truth about God that is the reality that governs all things and should be the filter for our thoughts. So what exactly is God's holiness? So many books have been written on just this one attribute, and there's good reason for that. God's holiness is an overarching reality that drives all that he does, including his laws and our redemption. And while I value the in-depth study on this subject by others, I also just wanted to see his holiness in his word for myself. So what I talk about this morning will consist mainly of my simple interactions with the word as I encountered God's holiness day by day in my reading of it. There's no way I could exhaustively cover all the aspects of God's holiness. I couldn't even if I tried because I don't know everything there is to know about it. My aim is to simply whet our appetites to spur us all on in the wonder of who God is and connect that to our lives in a meaningful way. So I wanna take a stab at defining God's holiness from the way it shows up in God's word. Come along with me as I ask questions and try to understand more deeply what it means that God is holy. And I think all the verses that I'm using are gonna be up on the screen behind me. I want to start by reading two passages that give us a heavenly glimpse of God's holiness. First, we have Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
This picture of God in his holiness is strange. It's hard to imagine. We might understand the Lord on a throne, but the train of his robe filling the temple, the six-winged flying seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, the building is shaking and filled with smoke. I'd say none of us are personally familiar with this kind of sight. It's anything but common and familiar. Here's another account from Revelation. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation 4, 2 through 8. Now, we could simply just study these two passages or even one, and it would be enough to fill our time this morning. I just mainly want to draw out one thing from them. God in his holiness is unique to anything we know. That's why the biblical writers are using similes to help us understand what God in his holiness appears like, but we would rightly conclude that it's beyond our imagination. Nothing in this world exists that compares to God in his holiness. He is completely other unique to anything in this world. So we can say that one aspect of God's holiness um, is his absolute and unparalleled uniqueness. Part of this uniqueness is that he is set apart in a class all his own. Let's look at how we can see that in the Bible. The word holy first shows up in Genesis 2-3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God makes something holy, the seventh day, which would be a day of rest. He distinguishes this day from all the others. He sets it apart. Right from the beginning, it seems that this concept of holiness is something God does more than something God is. But look closer. This day is holy or set apart because of God's action of resting. It's a day that reflects himself. It's very much a part of who God is. We rest because he rested. The actual word holy doesn't appear again in Genesis. However, a lot is happening. 
Perhaps the biggest thing is God's choosing of a people for himself. He sets apart Abraham from everyone else on earth and makes a covenant with him that will impact countless people, including us. God is undertaking holy action, a separating of one thing from another. How can God just do this? Though it's not spoken yet, it's clearly seen that to set something apart, it must flow from someone who is set apart. If God himself were not the creator of all, the ruler and sustainer of all things, what power and right would he have to choose a particular people to be his own? He'd be no more than a playground bully who excludes, himself, excludes others if he himself were not set apart as the true supreme being, God. In Exodus, we see that God's chosen people are in bondage. They don't seem set apart, says they are the lowest in rank among the people of Egypt with no rights of their own. It's during this time that we get another clear look at God's holiness, when God speaks to Moses and tells him of his plan to deliver his people from their bondage in Egypt. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And when Moses, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Here we see God drawing near to Moses in a particular and powerful way. God himself describes this place where he appears to Moses as holy ground, meaning holy because God is meeting with him there and speaking to him. We see the aspect of God's holiness being wherever he manifests his presence. He's present everywhere, but he particularly manifests his presence before people at particular times. We begin to see that holiness also includes something else more than just separation. We could ask this question, why is God set apart? We see in Moses' reaction that there's a fear to even look at God, and we see in God's response to Moses when he says, do not come near, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. What is it about God that makes him so distinguished from all else that it is forbidden and even fearful to come near? Later in Exodus, we start seeing more clues about the answer. God sets up some parameters for their worship of him. He sets apart particular men, priests, who will be consecrated, and there are very particular rules about how they approach the holy place, the place where God comes to meet with man. There are descriptions about what they will wear, holy garments, and how the tabernacle or tent of meeting will be arranged and decorated with holy objects. 
objects and clothing that are set apart for this particular singular purpose. All of this is entirely instigated and instituted by God. This is not a man-made religion, but this is God who is set apart, showing the distinction between himself and mankind. God appoints priests who mediate between God and the people, and they serve the people by following God's ways of atoning for the people's sin. How can ordinary man accomplish this? Do we not instinctively feel the difference between these priests and God? There was a lot of preparation involved in order to make them able to carry out this task, from the undergarments to the holy turban and breastplate they wore, to the shedding of bulls and um, shedding of blood of bulls to atone for their sin, they could not just casually take on this role. Their very lives were at stake if these rules were not followed exactly. Here's the wording regarding the wearing of the special garments. And they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Exodus 28:43. We begin to see the idea that holiness is also perfection. He is absolutely pure. From the non-blemished sacrifices that were required to the need in the first place to offer up sacrifices, it's due to man's lack of perfection. This began when Adam and Eve sinned, or another way of putting it, when Adam and Eve disregarded God's rule. Once again, we need to add something to this definition of holiness. God is unique, set apart, and perfectly pure. I saw the aspect of his purity more clearly as I read through Leviticus. God is holy, he's set apart, and he is perfect. Therefore, he makes the rules. Why does he even need to do this? Is it for his benefit? I mean, ultimately he receives glory. But have you ever thought much about that? Even in the laying down of the law, God is revealing more of himself. He's showing us more about his holiness, but also consider this. By laying down the law, he is inviting the people that he has set apart a way of living in a set-apart way like him. The people have the need, not him. How many times have we heard or thought of the sacrifices and rules as a way to appease God? Is that true? Does God have any need of this? No. He initiates all of it as a way for us to be in fellowship with him. We have the need to draw near to him. We have the need to have our sins atoned for. It is for us. We are the beneficiaries. His rules are his way of bringing his people near. Stop and marvel at that for just a moment. His rules are his way of bringing his people near. He 
so distinguished from all of his creation, so perfect in every way, desires to have relationship with those who are created in his image. The rules and the sacrifices are so we can be in relationship with holy God. How far does this unholiness of ours reach? I will read just one of the many verses that say essentially the same thing. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things by which the Lord's, uh, by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. Leviticus 4, 27 and 28. I ask you this, doesn't it seem like unintentional sins or mistakes are innocent? Something we shouldn't be accountable for because they weren't deliberate. That's the way I tend to look at it, especially if it has to do with me doing something intentionally. But no, that's not the way God looks at it. Even if we unintentionally do something that deviates from what God has commanded or fail to do something that he commands, it requires blood to be spilled. There is a need for forgiveness. We're prone to justify and excuse ourselves because we didn't mean it. Yet with God, that will not work. The payment is the same as it is for unintentional sins or intentional sins. Therefore, all sin, intentional and unintentional, is, against, is sin against holy God. The magnitude of that reality is sobering and yet hopeful because while we might just be grasping at that truth, God has always known it and he's given us a remedy. Forgiveness is his idea. The need was there all along and it's his mercy, his grace, and his kindness to point it out to us and lead us to himself, himself, holy God. So far throughout Genesis and Exodus, the holiness of God is implied rather than stated, but in Leviticus 11:44 through 45, God himself says, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, in this particular case, it had to do with swarming things, but there are so many ways a person can defile themselves according to Levitical law. Why does he want them to not defile themselves? Because he redeemed them. He brought them out of Egypt to be their God. He set them apart to live in a set-apart way. They follow his rules, not their intuition or their experiential knowledge, not what comes naturally or what their neighbors are doing, what he says. As you read through Leviticus, the rules seem laborious at times, but the common thread has to do with cleanness and uncleanness, an absolute perfect purity, 
not just sin, but every effect of sin, right down to mold and skin diseases. God governs everything from their diet to their lodging and their appearance. And while much of what God asks is very foreign to our modern lives, the point, again, is that he was making his set-apart people holy. And in telling them what they should not do, we get a more and more clear picture of who he is, clean, righteous, pure, unmixed with any defilement, and not just sinless, but without any taint of sin. In front of this holy God, the people are given a choice to see him for who he is and obey him, to take him at his word and do everything he asks of them, or to disregard what he asks and suffer the consequences. As I read through Leviticus and came to chapter 26, where he lists the blessings for obedience and the punishments for disobedience, I was reminded that the key to a heart of obedience is recognizing that the Lord desires to turn towards us, to dwell with us, to walk among us and be our God and to have us be his people. Psalm 103 comes to mind as David exults, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. After just having read Leviticus not that long ago, I realized something. Diseases kept people from entering God's presence. Diseases are a deviation from his perfect creation, a marring of his perfect design. So even in the healing of diseases and the Bible's emphasis on it, it had, I think, primarily to do with people being brought near to God. The psalmist can say, heals all your diseases, and I think it's referring to breaking down every barrier that stands in the way of you drawing near. It's not that God doesn't compassionately care about our suffering, he does, but the biggest concern that affects us eternally is removing those barriers that exist because of the chasm, because of the chasm between his holiness and our unholiness. Also, it's the holiness of God drawing near that ignites the psalmist's heart to proclaim, oh, how I love your law. It is, the medit it is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.97. I mean, let's be honest. Has that ever sounded weird to you? Why would someone love and think about the law all the time? The psalmist knows, I think, that the law is God's plan to bring people close and that the law is right and good, holy, because God is holy. My objective here is not to overemphasize the Levitical law, but rather to illustrate how it clearly shows us how far we are from being holy in ourselves. I'll put it another way. The law demonstrates how God is in a completely different category than us, and yet in his clean, pure, holy perfection, unlike anything in the universe, he has a plan to draw us near, to claim us as his own, to make us holy as he is holy. The Old Testament clearly demonstrates the futility of our own holiness without God's intervention. Time and time again, even the characters of the Bible who seem the most holy 
reveal character flaws and disregard God's holiness. I'm sure you can all think of people right off the top of your head who demonstrated to us that even the best and most devoted to God are not perfect. Consider Moses. He exemplifies this well. Here is what the Bible says about him. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Numbers 12.3. As I've been soaking in the scriptures describing his life, I find him to be a wonderful example for me. After God revealed to himself to him at the burning bush, his life was lived in obedient faith. He walked through many difficulties and God spoke to him regularly. His meekness enabled him to endure the many complaints and accusations from the Israelites time and time again. But then in Numbers 20, things take a different turn. People are upset again, this time because they're out of water. This is a legitimate concern, but in their pattern of being the complainy people that they are, they voice bitter complaints against Moses and Aaron, and once again claim they would be better off in bondage, which is a whole different topic. Moses gets it right, and he immediately goes to the Lord for help, and the Lord answers him right away with provision for this need. The one step needed is for Moses to take his staff and tell the rock to yield water. He believes that God will do this, but he changes the way it will come about by angrily striking the rock and saying, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Does his rea uh, reaction of anger not seem understandable? It's akin to kicking an object or pounding your fist in frustration. The people had been plenty annoying, but what does God say about it? And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Numbers 20. 12. Moses is sharing in God's glory for something that is impossible for a man to accomplish on his own. Moses has no power to bring water out of that rock, yet he says, shall we bring water out of this rock? God says, because you did not believe in me. Now that's a powerful charge to someone who not only went to God for help, but believed truly that the water would come out of the rock so abundantly as to provide for a million plus people and livestock. So I have to ask, how did Moses not believe in God? Well, it had to do with God's holiness. God says that he did not uphold him as holy before the people. To share in God's glory or to take even partial credit for something only he can do is in a way trying to make oneself like him. And because God is completely unique, set apart, and perfectly pure, no one can share in his glory. Moses did this in front of the whole congregation, and so he was not upholding the glory of God's holiness. 
His consequence is that he also will not be able to enter the promised land. And the Bible sums it all up by saying this very interesting phrase, these are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. Numbers 20, 13. Through them he showed himself holy. Through their complaining, through Moses' anger, and through his holy, perfect justice. I've mentioned that God's holiness is an overarching attribute. What I mean by that is that his unique, set-apart perfection applies to every attribute. We can say he has holy love, pure wrath, perfect justice, complete faithfulness, untainted goodness, etc. Because each of these qualities is uniquely different than man and perfectly pure. His holiness is the adjective that is a prefix for everything he does. I speak for myself. God's holiness confronts me in many ways. It's my failure to grasp his holiness that at times leads me to judge him. It sounds ridiculous that a created being who owes everything to her creator and sustainer would have a suspicious and judgmental eye towards this holy God, yet it is a sad reality. Can you relate with a thought like this? You read something in God's word that just doesn't seem fair, and you think God is overreacting. Perhaps even the story I just mentioned, but there are so many more. Take, for instance, this story. Aaron, the first high priest, has two sons that have been with him and have been a part of the inauguration of the tabernacle, the place where God dwells. So far, so good. And then this. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified, which is another way of saying holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Now, when you hear that story, do you instinctively think of God's holiness? I mean, that's great if you do, but often I have thoughts like this. They were only desiring to worship God. Their hearts seemed sincere. Or I'm thinking about poor Aaron, who suddenly lost two precious children in what seemed like an innocent mistake. How is that fair, God? But look deeper with me. Nadab and Abihu did something outside of God's commands for his own worship. God made his rules clear, yet in some way they presumed upon him and came before him in a different way than what he had given them. And while this might seem small to us, if it does seem small, it shows us that we need to grow in our understanding of what it really means that God is holy. In Numbers, we read an account of 250 men who stood up to Moses. They accused him of being holier than thou, literally. <laughs> they purported that they were all holy and accused Moses of exalting himself. 
His answer to them was fascinating to me, and I spent some time thinking about it. And he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Numbers 16, 5. This caused me to begin looking into the idea of bringing near and drawing near, and it became clear that God brings people near and does what it's necessary to make them holy, because without holiness, no one can see God. It also became clear that people cannot just draw near on their own terms. There's a swift punishment for that. Aaron's two sons, death. The leaders of the rebellion against Moses who claimed a holiness of their own, death. Later in First Chronicles, we read about Uzzah who put his hand out and touched the Ark of the Covenant, a holy object in the worship of God, and immediately died. And though it seems innocent and unintentional, it was against God's specific terms and punishable. This is just how holy, meaning unique, set apart and perfectly pure God is. There can be no taint and no presumption when it comes to drawing near to him in his holiness. In 1 Timothy, we read this description of God, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. We know about the gospel and the atonement that covers our sin and makes us holy. However, how often do we really sit in the reality of God's perfect holiness and just how unapproachable he really is to us without Jesus? We get casual about the privilege of relationship with God. We can hear over and over that salvation is a gift and hear everything about God's love for us, but we don't really understand how massive the gift is and how amazing God's love for us until we understand God and his holiness. Israel had these demonstrations of swift judgments proceeding from God's holiness that happened occasionally in their history, but the larger ongoing demonstration of God's holiness is in the unending sacrifices that were required. Frequently, even daily, sacrifices were to be made for the people just to give them access to God because he is holy and they are not. Over and over, they would have been reminded of their need. Continually, they would feel the weight of their sin. I love the book of Hebrews, which demonstrates what Jesus did so clearly. After the writer of Hebrews sets Jesus up as superior to everything that had spoken about God thus far, the angels, the prophets, Moses, the law, and the priests, it proclaims him as the new and better way. But not before recounting the history of the Israelites, it reminds them of the terror they felt when God manifested his presence on Mount Sinai. They couldn't even come near or they would die. Hebrews shows how the continual blood needed pointed to a come but stay away covenant. God invited them to draw near, 
but only after he had made atonement for their sin, which was to deviate in any way from the law that, they, that he had given them. They needed to regularly kill the bull, offer the grain, make a sacrifice to God, and then do it again and again and again. Like I mentioned before, this would have clearly demonstrated the futility of the blood of animals to make people be near to God in a permanent way. But Jesus, holy God himself, unique, set apart, perfectly pure in every way, he kept every law. He never sinned intentionally or unintentionally. However, when he came to wake as a child, as we sang earlier, he took on our unholiness. Here's how Romans 8, 3 through 4 puts it. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit our holy triune god is at work in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us righteous means right the requirements of the law were right and fitting in light of the holiness of god when the Spirit opens our eyes to recognize God's holiness and realize our unholiness and causes us to believe by faith on Jesus as our substitute, not only as an atonement for sin, but also as the fulfiller of our need to be holy, everything changes for us in relation to God. Considering God's infinite holiness and our inability to draw near on our own, the words in Hebrews 4.16 are shocking. Think about this from the perspective of the original audience, the Hebrew nation, well familiar with their own history and the times people tried to approach God on their own and were struck down. It says in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not only through Jesus have we been invited to draw near, but with confidence. Here are some other verses in Hebrews that speak to this. Listen carefully. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, Hebrews 7:19. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7:25. For since since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews 10:1. I hope I'm making this clear that drawing near in any way other than God's way is certain judgment. 
But he, holy God, protects us from judgment. He saves us as we draw near through Jesus who took that judgment on himself. And I do want to come full circle about something I mentioned at the beginning regarding our feelings versus the objective truth of who God is. While our motivations for relationship with God cannot be based primarily on our feelings because the truth is objective no matter how we feel, when we see God for who he is, our feelings surely are affected. I mentioned how dry and uninspired I was at the beginning of studying God's holiness. And as God revealed more of himself through his word, I began to come alive with an increased desire to know him more. I felt emotion well up within me, and I was full of joy and wonder at who God is and what he's done for me. Growing in our knowledge should not begin with our feelings, but it most certainly should have an effect on our affections for God. Otherwise, it's knowledge that puffs up and not a growing humility, love, and right fear of God. Every instance in the Bible of God showing up in the display of his holiness caused great fear and also humbling. The sign of this humbling is bowing down with a confession of unworthiness Truly seeing God is to see ourselves, and what we see in ourselves should show us our need for his act of salvation. Imagine with me that final day when you stand face to face with God. There will only be two options, eternal death or eternal life. When we see God in all his holiness and our with our own eyes, every question about why he did or didn't do something in our lifetime will be silenced. Every wondering who he really, if he really is who he says he is will be answered with a resounding yes. Nothing in all the universe will matter to us at that moment because it will all be eclipsed by his holiness. The only attribute of God that is reiterated three times in order to emphasize its importance, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His holiness will be on the forefront of our minds and will humble us as every knee bows before him. However, keep thinking with me about that day. Not only will we understand truthfully the distinction between us and him, you can imagine, or can you imagine, the joy that you'll feel to see clearly and realize in full that you have been brought near to him. He has chosen you to be brought near. He has cleared every obstacle that kept you from him. We will tremble in his presence as we rejoice that this holy God, the one whom we were made for, the one who is perfect in every way, has not only fulfilled the requirement through Jesus to pay for our sins so that we can be tolerated, but we will rejoice because we belong there in his presence. We will rejoice because he doesn't just call us familiar acquaintances, but friends. We will rejoice because we are not just random people. He has made us his very own daughters, 
with all the rights and privilege that come with being part of his family. We will see him as we've never seen before and realize that it had nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. And the starkness of that humbling realization in the face of his holiness will at once undo us and remake us. Friends, on that final day, when all this happens, all the dimness in our eyes will be clear, but these realities are true now, even in this moment. Though we may see dimly, his word clearly tells us these things, and we have the opportunity every moment to live in this state of humble rejoicing before holy God as we live lives in humble obedience as the Holy Spirit conforms us to his holiness and presents us blameless on that final day. Truly, God, this is an amazing reality. We praise you for who you are, perfect, beyond our imagination, unique, set apart, holy God. We do not deserve to have relationship with you. We do not deserve to be brought near, but you are merciful. And you have done this, and we praise you and thank you.